It is what time? About 1.04. Um, so welcome back to the DC5 curriculum. Hopefully everyone had a very nice new year and is uh, ready to be back here learning. Um, it is my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Matthew Schreiber. Um, and so he is um, a critical care provider um, who's at MedStar uh, Health. And he is going to be talking to us today about sort of a different topic, which is um, ethics. Um, and Dr. Schreiber, I really appreciate you being here today, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your talk. Awesome. Um, thank you for having me. A um, couple, I guess, of, of disclosure issues. One, um, so at Washington Hospital Center today, uh, we had some kind of connectivity issue, and, and things had to go down for a little bit. So I will sincerely apologize if uh, it becomes a problem in the next hour. Um, hopefully not, because I couldn't even get online for this a little while ago, so I'm assuming things are better now. Um, and two, um, just as a uh, an issue with the particular desktop that I'm working on, um, it, it, it doesn't load presenter mode for PowerPoint, so um, the view you have is what it is. Um, it's going to get a little wonky with a couple of these where I had animations not expecting the issue with, the, with this, but we'll get through it. Um, your, before you start, your shared screen actually has went, went down since you last asked if we could see it. Oh. You share again and make sure we can see something. Okay. Better? Yeah. yeah. Now we're back to where we started. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Um, so, okay. Um, I, like you can see there, I, I am an active critical care provider. Um, I work in a surgical ICU by, by name, but really it ends up being a mixed um, kind of ICU with a, a smattering of uh, I'll be in units with all neuro or uh, medical or surgical trauma. Um, don't do burns and don't do um, CVICU. But the the issues that we're going to talk about hopefully are pervasive through any place that any of you are working. Um, and because this is something that could be a year-long kind of course uh, or master's or whatever on its own, I'm going to try to hit some highlights of what I think might be pertinent to your everyday practice. Um, I'm also the chair of our ethics committee, working closely with the people who do the clinical bedside ethics consults, um, part of the subcommittee where we have to get a group together for maybe more complex issues. Um, and so do have a little bit of background um, for this topic. So I'm going to start here with just kind of a, a brief overview. We're going to talk a little bit about these kind of key issues, consent, capacity, emergency care, surrogates, um, and then what happens when maybe some of the relationships that you're forming between yourself and either the patient or the surrogates start to get a little dicey um, when it comes to the care we're providing in the unit um, and what to do about that conflict. So let, let's talk about a not uncommon patient experience. So you're on your shift and you get called that there's a, a John Doe, um, like not just preserving someone's information, but literally an unidentified person that just got brought into your ER and needs to come up to the unit. They were found unresponsive. Uh, imaging found them to have uh, some intracerebral issue that resulted in obstructive hydrocephalus, had to have an EVD placed. Um, they're intubated, they're sedated, um, and obviously need to come somewhere. So they're coming up to your unit. And later that day, they become even less stable. They start having hypotension, their maps are dropping into the 50s and 40s, um, and you really want to get that controlled to make sure that they're still perfusing the rest of their head, um, and despite giving a couple of years of fluid, not able to quite get there. And, and so your, your team, you know, recognizes, hey, we probably need to start a presser. And someone says to you, you know, 
we're starting pressers, that means we need to get a line and an A line. And so think to yourself for a second, is, is that appropriate? We don't have uh, any identification for this patient. So we don't have anyone that we can ask permission from, and we can't really interact with that patient because of both the disease process they're dealing with and their sedation, and they aren't talking to us till the vent. Um, and you know, even if we turn the station down, can't. So is that okay? Well, what about a little bit later? That if that person who's still intubated, got the EVD, um, is now stabilized with some resuscitation and time, and so they're better hemodynamically, but now they're anemic and looking for all intents and purposes like they're having a legit non-ST elevated MI. And someone says to you, hey, you know, person's now anemic and uh, you know, the HA guidelines say we should be transfusing to a hemoglobin of eight. I'm going to give them a unit of blood. Is that appropriate? How about even later on that they get hypoxic and they're needing 100% oxygen and their x-ray has had areas of atelectasis. And so someone says, well, we should open them up. You know, we should get a, a bronch and uh, put that down there and suck out any uh, mucus plugging that we can find and open them up. And, and even farther down the road, you know, we're now a week and a half in social work. Everybody hasn't been able to find uh, who this person is, can't find any family, can't find any contacts, still on the vent, but they're otherwise stable. Um, off sedation, still unresponsive by all intents and purposes, looking like they might end up in a permanent vegetative state. And uh, people are documenting the chart. This is a poor prognosis. And the ICU team starts saying, well, hey, you know, this is somebody who has no one to care for them, no insurance that we can ascertain, uh, is probably not going to wake up. Um, and because of that, they can't control their secretions. Um, they need airway protection. And so instead of a trach and a peg, that's just prolonging suffering. And so we should move to comfort care. And would that be appropriate? So, so these, these are not uncommon questions and experiences that happen every day in a lot of hospitals. Um, and, and I hope some of you felt more comfortable and maybe a little less comfortable with different uh, scenarios that were presented. But I hope you realize that they're all just different points on kind of the same spectrum of we make decisions and we have our own baggage that we bring that can skew what we think is and is not appropriate. And these are all truly ethical issues. Um, I have a, a mentor in our own Center for Ethics who, who I quote saying, it's not that people who do bioethics and medical ethics or are trained in ethics are more ethical, but hopefully they're trained to help tease out what are the issues in play to make the best decisions that we can of what ought to be done for a patient um, and are able to maybe separate uh, themselves from the scenario to look at what the ethical issues are um, to really try to do right by people. <clears throat> a little bit different patient and then we'll get into some actual didactic here, but think about someone that you admit to the ICU with sepsis. They're awake, they're disoriented, but awake and oriented, at least a name, and they have someone with them who uh, is listed as their contact and is present and um, is a relatively appropriate surrogate decision maker, their adult son. Um, and during that shift, they start to get 
more confused and they start refusing to take all their meds. They say, no, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not going to take this. I, I don't want that. I don't want to be poked for any more for blood draws. You know, is that okay? Labs and meds are not something we typically do informed consent for. And we try to counsel and help people through that process. But something as small as that, is it okay to let them have that degree of autonomy to refuse those medications? Or is it something that we take a harder line on? Well, what if things get a little bit more extreme? And now that patient has ST elevations, has a, a, a very high troponin level, is having chest pain, starting to have vital sign changes. They're now agitated, less awake, more hypoxic. They won't answer questions for you. But whenever you come near them with stuff, they're screaming, don't touch me, leave me alone. So still consistent and not wanting, you know, needles and medications and things like that, but a different level of mental status. And because of the changes on their telemetry and labs and clinical situation, you call uh, what we call a code heart. And cardiology comes by and says, yeah, this is an appropriate person to take to the cath lab. Um, do you let them go? And how far would you go to send them? Would you intubate them, put them on sedation, four-point restraints, antipsychotics, things that go against their will? You know, similar issues, similar spectrum. How far do you go? And that's the tough part. You know, if the if if the patient said no, or the cardiologist said, hey, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna tie this person down and intubate them just to do a, a cath. You know what? We'll just 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 medically manage them in that. Um, but they have these unstable vital signs. Do you take that next step and say, well, we can't treat them and they're now going to be in a refractory cardiogenic shock? Do we change their code status? Difficult decisions. So let's go through some of how to handle some of this. Well, well what is consent? By definition, consent is just getting permission or giving permission, um, agreeing to do something. It, it's a process that we, we do in all different ways throughout the hospital every single day. You know, is it okay if I take a listen to your chest? Yeah, you just got consent. Is it okay if uh, I, you know, have these medications for you? These are what they're for. These are what they do. I uh, want you to take them, hand it to you. Even if it's nonverbal, you know, patient basically gives their consent and does it. That's different than what we do for informed consent. Informed consent's not that old of an idea, really. Uh, Fundamentally, it's, it's a process to make sure that we are protecting the patient and protecting their autonomy to make decisions for themselves. It's a process that we go through to try to make sure that that patient is actually able to provide consent and not just come to a paternalistic impulse of their provider saying, this is what you're going to do. Um, now, the patient can defer some of that. They can say, um, you know, let me talk to my spouse and see what they think about it. Or look at their spouse and say, what do you think I should do? Or what should I do? Or even tell you to talk to them and let them decide. Non-informed consent happens all the time. And I've done it myself where someone hands me a form and I don't read through the entire uh, policy and procedure because in the end, you know, I, I just have decided that, yeah, I actually want to access that website or pay for that lift ticket or get this procedure done in a doctor's office and all the details that come on that form, I'm kind of bypassing, but that's an active decision on my own part to have the autonomy to say, I'm going to do this without being informed. 
that's not the same as what we have responsibility to do on the healthcare provider side of at least trying to provide that information to let them have every side of the story to make the best decision for themselves, knowing what they're getting into. This all started just about 120 years ago. Um, and with stuff that you can imagine, there's no way anyone would do that anymore. You know, in 1905, there were two lawsuits brought and, and those are the references, but essentially it was someone who had uh, in, in one case, trauma of their head and ears and the surgeon was going to do a reconstructive surgery on one ear, but then in the OR after the patient was under anesthesia decided that the other ear was the, the more needy place and changed the site without consent and approval. Um, went to court and the court decided, no, you can't really do that. Um, you have to have the patient agree before you start cutting off pieces of their body. And likewise, in the second case there, Pratt and Davis, um, a patient ended up undergoing a hysterectomy against their will um, because the surgeon said that they didn't uh, have the ability to provide um, uh, an understanding of needing a hysterectomy because they had a, a history of epilepsy. Um, Later on, these other two cases were very similar. Someone agreeing and consenting to have a surgery, um, but the surgeon extending that surgery to include removal of the bone of the, in the foot um, without consent from the patient. And the second there, uh, an additional uh, patient who said, uh, I did not want to have a hysterectomy done for fibroids um, and unfortunately underwent that. And the courts agreed that you know, there has to be some protection for patients to say I'm in control of my body and you will not do things to me without my permission. Um, these four cases really were the fundamental change in law in the United States um, to say that we need to be involving patients and allowing them to control some of their body. And, and that sounds you know, like, of course, we wouldn't do that, but we do it all the time, right? The John Doe that came in in that example, um, we move forward and do things without consent. Um, and in, a, in the example of someone who is maybe delirious or not able to uh, demonstrate that they have an understanding of what's going on, we may do things against their will. And that's where all of this spectrum starts to bleed into one another. So here's a you know, front page of the policy for consent at our hospital. And yeah, it spells out that we should be telling patients a description of the risks, benefits, and alternatives to what we're gonna to do to them, to let them actually make a decision because their values and what they think is important might not be the same as what we think is important in our values as healthcare providers. And in the end, their level of autonomy to decide what's important to them is what should drive the next steps in care. Now we can frame things in a way that help guide them. And there's lots of literature out there about the differences between saying chances of survival versus chances of death about highlighting the success of a procedure or talking about minimizing the risks of a procedure. But that's you know, further graying of what we should do. At the minimum, it's, it's these things here, talking about the risks, benefits, and alternatives. And ask yourselves, is that what you always do? Do you always talk about alternatives to placing that central line? Are you going to offer the alternatives to placing that central line and running peripheral pressors or talking about other interventions? Um, are you going to be clear that there is no benefit necessarily to a uh, diagnostic bronchoscopy if you aren't doing biopsies? If you're just taking a look, um, is there anything to be there? And you can make arguments about even the example of the therapeutic bronch for pulling out secretions. 
Is that any different than providing chest physiotherapy and mucolytics? The literature may argue that, right? And so being clear about what are the benefits here um, is something you have to decide in your own practice how much to give to people. But at the minimum, offer them those three aspects. And you should look at what your own institutional policies are because here at Hospital Center, our, our consent process does say that the discussion should include advanced care planning, knowing the wishes of the patient, their advanced directives in case things go badly. And there is no policy that says you must reverse to full code status for things like surgeries and other invasive procedures. Um, so knowing what the policies actually already work may change the way you start having these conversations. But that requires having a patient who is able to understand what's going on, right? Or, or someone for them. So when talking about getting informed consent, we have to be talking to someone who has some degree of capacity and who should assess this and how should they assess this? Well, that gets tricky too. So you, you probably have heard at different points in different times, things like, oh, capacity can only be decided by behavioral health or capacity is something that only can be decided in the court or um, we have to clearly document that this patient lacks capacity or has capacity. However, you all know that's not what you do, right? You, you are much more in line with the first bullet here, I'm sure, that patients are generally presumed to have capacity. When you meet somebody for the first time who's awake and talking to you, you talk to them and tell them what's going on and give them information, ask them questions like they have capacity to understand what's going on and provide you valuable information. And when you have somebody who is deeply sedated and unable to talk to you because of their ET tube or their underlying pathophysiology, you clearly know this person does not have capacity because they can't interact with you. You make capacity decisions every single day in the ICU. You might not be documenting this patient lacks capacity when you write, write down your pain, agitation, and sedation and delirium plan, but you're, you're actually kind of doing that when you say, you know, we're gonna talk to family or update family, or patient is a RAS of minus four. And you know, those things don't go along with someone who is able to demonstrate capacity. It's when things aren't clear that you start to need help. And so if you need um, some help in deciding does this person have capacity or not, that's where things like behavioral health can really be helpful for you. As soon as you say, I'm not sure the patient has capacity, you should start looking for someone who can help make those decisions for them, a surrogate decision maker. And if there is no surrogate available, there's no contact or the contacts that you have aren't willing to do that, start the guardianship process. Um, one of our hospital legal counsel pointed out, this approach is technically outside the law of saying, I decided you have capacity, I decided you didn't, and I'm going to assign someone else to make decisions, but it is a standard of medical practice. And so every institution generally accepts that, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna take that minimal risk of following this process because it is the standard of care. Now, capacity is not a legal assessment. It's a medical one. It's something that not only we do, but other providers do all the time. And when you assess capacity, it has to be about a particular decision. It, it's not global that for someone who you're not sure about either having it all the way or not having it all the way, that you can say, because you didn't have capacity to decide whether or not you should go on ECMO, I'm gonna decide you don't also have capacity to decide whether or not you will take this medication, right? The threshold for determining capacity is dependent on what is being presented to them, the complexity of it. 
what comes along with getting an organ transplant versus what coming, comes along with refusing to get labs this morning, right? And, and the bar that you hold for somebody of saying they will be respecting their autonomy to refuse or accept something depends on that level of complexity. Now, in the times that you're not sure and it's not crystal clear, how do you actually make that decision to say, I think they do or don't have it? What is it that our behavioral health colleagues and, and people with a little more experience and comfort in this process doing? Well, there's no clear definition of that either, but there are some generally accepted standards. And so the, the classical approach is from a paper written by Applebaum, and this is a review article that um, highlights some of that, but says you, you should try to get your patient to demonstrate these four things. Understanding of the information being given to them, appreciation of how that information applies to them and what's going on, an ability to reason through the risks and benefits that come with the information you gave them, that they are really sick and that this procedure has risks, but it's worth it because of these other benefits and it's better than the alternative, and the ability to give a choice and say, yeah, I want to do this. Um, there's debate in the literature about how consistency matters. And I'll bet you've seen examples of someone who says, oh, they change their mind every day so they don't have capacity versus someone who says, they change their mind because they got more information and they do have capacity and the ability to change their mind. There's not a standard for this. There's not a, you have to maintain consistency for X number of hours or X number of asks or among X number of providers. People can change their mind. And so it's a nuance to say, do you believe they changed their mind because they knew what was going on or do they change their mind because they don't understand what's going on and can't process what's going on. This is where getting expert opinion and extra help can benefit you if you're not comfortable or familiar with this. <clears throat> when it comes to guardianship, know about where you work. So in DC, that can't happen without an assessment from behavioral health. There have to be two providers providing an assessment, one of which is from behavioral health. Um, so it's not just behavioral health saying that they lack capacity. It has to be a couple of folks involved. And usually it's someone from the ICU and then calls our psychiatric um, peers and, and they come by and leave a second note, but that's the only real requirement for someone from behavioral health to come by. Now your hospital may have certain rules and where you work may have certain rules, but from a medical standard, um, this is something that you should all work to try to get more comfortable doing because it is something that you can actually perform and assess in your patients decide in the difficult ones, do they have capacity or not for a particular decision. Well, what about the times where the patient does not have capacity to make a decision, does not have the ability to process and understand and, and meet those four standards of capacity, and yet something needs to be done? What do you do when no one is available? So emergency care, like our example of someone that comes in and needs that EVD, and you can debate whether or not needs that central line and other stuff. Well, in DC, and again, look where you work, Emergency care may always be provided without consent if no one's available to give that consent and in the reasonable medical judgment of your physician. Um, delaying care to locate someone would cause a substantial risk of death, that the health of the individual be placed in serious jeopardy, that there'd be serious impairment, bodily functions, or serious dysfunction to a bodily organ or part. And I hope you're reading those four things and saying, that's awfully vague. It is. 
it doesn't clearly spell out if waiting to get consent for dialysis because there's going to be dysfunction to somebody's homeostasis means go ahead and start it right now. Some people would argue yes, some people would argue no. You know, it's not the same as saying putting in that central line right now because we don't have four hours to try to keep making phone calls is a serious impairment to bodily functions or to risk of injury or dysfunction to a bodily organ. Is that elevated creatinine because of the service process reason enough to say that we have to do a central line rather than peripheral stuff? This is what you need to be documenting your notes to make the case, but it, it is gray. And hopefully that makes you a little bit nervous or a little bit more attentive into what you need to be putting into your decision-making the chart when you say that we're doing something because um, we have to. Now, emergency care is not following standards of care. Like you might say, it's standard of care for us to do this, but just because that's what we would do if we could get consent isn't the same as saying it must be done because there's serious risk to this patient if we don't. There's, there's a different level, right, between standard of care of what we do for everybody versus what we absolutely have to do to not put exceptional risk on this patient. And that's a difference. Um, expediting a plan or because it's more convenient to get something done now instead of waiting for a few days is also not emergency care. And so, you know, the, the team says we need an A-line and your cuff is working just fine and they're hemodynamically stable. Well, we need their MAP to be greater than 85 to maintain perfusion of their spinal cord injury. We need an A-line. That's generally a consensible process, right? And so just because that's in their best interests or because it's more convenient to have that kind of monitoring in place and because it's the standard care in your unit does not necessarily mean that it's emergency care and that it's justifiable um, to do without consent. This is a decision that is made every day in a lot of ICUs. And it's a decision you're going to have to continue to make throughout your whole careers. But hopefully thinking about these aspects will help you better document and make the case as to why you made the choice that you did to do something or not when you lack someone providing consent for that procedure. What should you be putting? You should be putting in the circumstances of why you are or are not providing that care under emergent circumstances. You should be framing it within what your local hospital and jurisdictional policies kind of back up for you. And best practice is to always have a second provider. You know, we talk about two physician consent, but that's not just a signature. There should be some kind of verbiage there saying why the situation is emergent and why consent cannot or should not be obtained, why we can't delay to keep looking for someone to sign this form um, or provide verbal consent over the phone of the witness, but why we have to do this right now. So really, this is the standard we should be following. Is it more work? Yeah. But is it the right thing to do? Yeah. So here's a, from our, our own policy that, that the signatures from the treating physician and another physician um, our licensed members, the medical staff, so not residents, not fellows, um, should be obtained along with documentation of the emergency circumstances. Um, however, our own institutional policies does say that if you can't get that additional signature um, and the care has to be rendered, um, 
just stating why is also good enough. And, and what that is, is really saying, you know, a John Doe comes in with multiple gunshot wounds into our trauma bay and they need to go to the OR right now. Yes, if, if it's a life and death situation and they need to go right now because they need to achieve hemostasis and, and other kind of intervention that uh, procedures that would normally be consented, do what's right for the patient. Um, make sure later though you've documented what those circumstances were and everything going on. Um, I think this is probably a very consistent language in a lot of institutions, but I hope for anyone that's not sure uh, what your own place of employment says when you get off of this lecture, you go into your policy repository and start pulling up these things to, to get a sense as to uh, what your hospital's legal counsel and administration is going to back you up on uh, if you do or don't do. So eventually, we got to find somebody to make decisions for these people, right? Um, whether if it's a family member, a spouse, a friend, whoever, or getting a guardian, um, hopefully everyone you take care of eventually has someone who can speak for them if they can't speak for themselves. Now, surrogate decision-making um, is honestly a hot mess. So we, we talk about this idea of substituted judgment that um, when the patient can't make a decision for themselves and doesn't have things cleanly spelled out in advanced directive, which I have yet to run into an advanced directive that really cleanly spells things out, um, that we try to find somebody who will be their voice who will say what the patient would have said if the patient were able to do so. Unfortunately, a lot of the literature that tries to back this up um, is fraught with, with problems. And, and that, like you see there, the, the evidence behind um, substituted judgment um, is, is not sound, that, that our inter- reader reliability, so to speak, of surrogates versus patients on what they would have said um, just doesn't match up. And in DC, um, we, we have this spelled out as to, well, who should we be talking to? And, and like you can see here, the assumption is after number one and two, um, kind of a path that follows who you think might know the patient the best. So one and two are both court appointed um, persons, and those are rare, right? Most folks that come in don't have a court-appointed person, but those two do take precedent over the rest of the list. And then kind of going down in levels of intimacy, it's, it's the person who lives with that patient all the time or their spouse, an adult child, meaning not a minor who might not be able to process the information, a parent of the patient, a sibling of the patient, um, someone who is connected to that patient through a, a religious institution and then a friend or the nearest living relative. So all the aunts, uncles, cousins, people like that. Um, it's important to, to recognize that this list is not universal as to who would be the closest to that person, right? You might be much closer to um, a close friend than you are to an adult sibling. You might be much closer to an adult child than you are to um, a, a domestic partner. I mean, it all depends on your relationships, right? And so it's also spelled out that um, the order of priority that's listed there creates a presumption that, could, that you could go against if a person of lower priority is found to have better knowledge of the wishes of the patient. And that's important too. I, I see this come up quite often where someone says, hey, um, the, the patient's um, uh, parent says this, um, but 
their uh, uh, brother says something else. You know, maybe that parent is much older, much less connected to the patient, maybe in their own, um, you know, state, whether if they're in a particular healthcare facility or have underlying past history um, that makes it difficult for them um, as compared to what the patient's sister or brother is saying to them. You don't have to be strict with this order of things um, if you find that it's not being clearly demonstrated that someone's speaking in the best actions of the patient, right? Number three there, the spouse or domestic partner is not uncommonly um, a bit of a hangup, right? That someone comes in and says, uh, maybe because they have some other issues going on where they are inclined to want to keep the patient alive to not lose them, but openly says, this isn't what they want, but this is what we're gonna do because I can't lose them, because I can't go on without them, because um, I need to have them around. People say things like that all the time. Um, and meanwhile, you have someone lower on the list saying, oh no, they would never wanna be traked and pegged. They would never wanna be kept alive on machines. Um, you don't have to stay in this order. This is a guideline. This is a, a set of suggestions. Um, and lucky for us in DC, part of our code to help with that. Um, the other thing you see here in that higher bullet point is that whoever you are gonna go with has to be available capable and willing. And so if someone does not meet one of those, if, if they cannot be reached on the phone for days and days or weeks at a time and is not reasonably available despite, not, despite them saying, oh yeah, that's my phone number, and just not answering, that's not an appropriate surrogate decision maker. And then you move through that list to try to find someone. Because in the end, it's about doing right by the patient. It's about finding someone who is available, capable, and willing um, who does have reasonable knowledge of that patient's wishes to help be the voice of that patient to provide some approximation of autonomy um, for the patient. We're protecting them, not the surrogate, so to speak. I already alluded to the situation and it's something I'm sure you all have experienced as well, but what happens when you run into that surrogate decision maker who's now asking for things that might not be in the best interests of that patient? Well, there's a bit of a stretch to this too, right? So talking about non-beneficial treatments, things that you don't think are the right thing to do for this patient, potentially medically inappropriate is another term you'll see in a minute here. It's important for us as providers to separate some ideas in our head. Um, specifically, my advice to you is to never make potentially inappropriate treatment or non-beneficial treatment about quality of life. That this is not about what would be wanted by someone when you're talking about non-beneficial treatment. It's, it's a physiologic concept. And the reason for that is because talking about, well, this is what they would want. If it's not going to be able to help them physiologically, then that whole risk benefit assessment only goes toward risk. And then we're talking about doing things that are harmful to people, not acting in their best interests. If we're talking about that surrogate decision maker who's saying things like, well, I need this, or I want that, 
Well, that's also talking about risk to the patient without benefit to the patient, but just to somebody else. Keeping things physiologic is, is a good approach when talking about non-beneficial treatment. Things like, um, you know, can we offer um, something as extreme as CPR when they are already on maximal medical therapy with max dose of pressors and multiple drugs and um, unsurmountable acidosis that can't be maintained with pushes of bicarb and CRT and everything else. If that patient's going to code because of these metabolic issues and we can't keep up with it while we're not doing compressions, well, we're not going to keep up with it while we are doing compressions. And so that really is a non-beneficial treatment, but that has nothing to do with quality of life or if we got them through the code, would they wake up again? Those kind of things really are judgment calls, not biologic calls. And when it comes to those judgment calls about not waking up again or having significant disability or ending up with a trach and a peg or ending up in a nursing home or ending up with the complications that come with maybe some of our less desirable disposition options that we see patients go to, when you look in the literature and talk to people who ended up that way after the fact, there's a discrepancy between what we think disabilities and lifestyles would mean versus how people report their quality of life. One example of that is folks with locked-in syndrome, folks who basically have infarcted areas of their brainstem that they are cognitively there and yet can't do anything with their body other than control some extraocular movements. Um, if you, I always tell folks, if you really want to depress yourself, or if you're like me, then you'll go home and try to watch uh, the butterfly and the bell diver um, uh, or, or just keep rewatching the, the last few minutes of Million Dollar Baby and, and think about how that situation would be. But that's, that's a, a personal thing, right? Um, here, 168, um, sorry, members um, of this organization with acute locked-in syndrome um, were communicated with um, via someone to help them with the communication, obviously, um, and asked um, about their subjective well-being being via validated surveys and end-of-life views. And what they found is that the majority of people reported um, that they were on the positive side of um, perception of their life. Now, you can see that bar graph, again, not the biggest type, only 168 people, but skews toward the positives. A plus five was as well uh, in, as in the best period prior to locked-in syndrome, and even a plus one is somewhat on the good side. And so 51% reported severe restrictions, but 72% showed happiness in their current state. And so studies like this kind of break my heart because I, I have had locked in patients in my own neuro ICU and seen conversations between surgeons and teams talking to family members uh, about doing a trach and a peg and committing this person to a life of nursing care and the decision to transition to comfort care um, because of the surrogate's belief of what the patient would want leave me feeling uncomfortable because studies like this um, highlight we might not always know what the patient wants. And the patient might not always know what they want because um, your perception of a situation is different when you're outside of it than inside it. Now, this kind of research has its own problems, right? Like there's definitely selection bias here because the people who ended up locked in and able to take a survey project 
are not the people who everyone knew would not want to be in that situation and had care with Jahan long before they could get to this survey. So there is some bias here. But I hope it makes you feel a little bit um, hesitant in saying, I know what someone would think about a quality of life change um, because of what you might think about a quality of life change. It, it takes a moment of pause. And so my advice is not to use quality of life in talking about what we should or shouldn't do for a patient, but talking about what those circumstances are expected to be, um, maybe voicing what you think you would want, but not to say what we should or shouldn't um, necessarily do solely based on quality of life. Um, you know, possible contributors to this um, you, you see listed there, and, and the big one there is healthy people's mispredictions um, of what it would be like to have a, a certain level of disability. Keep things biologic, keep things as a informed consent process. Um, again, framing and um, deciding how to present things to the patient's decision maker are, are probably free game, but having a humble respect of the limitations of that assessment are, are still awfully important to provide good care um, and allow an informed consent process. So like, like I've already kind of alluded to, this is all important because you're helping somebody make a decision, you're helping set expectations, and it's not necessarily accurate to say that you know what somebody's quality of life will be, because that is a um, you know, spiritual mental state, not just a biologic one. And the research does show that there is a, a mismatch between what we expect and what is actual in folks who do survive to the uh, period to be able to say what their quality of life is. Now, different from um, biologically, you know, can't get things done, non-beneficial is things that are potentially inappropriate. So a therapy that has some chance of achieving a physiologic goal, but in the judgment of the people providing care um, is inappropriate and shouldn't be provided. Um, you know, you might be saying, well, this is semantics, but no, it's different. Um, and an example of that is something like hemodialysis, right? Putting somebody on that machine almost guarantees that you'll make sodium, potassium, bicarb, BUN, creatinine a little bit better, right? Um, but even um, clinical practice guidelines, um, this is published from the American Society of Nephrology uh, a number of years ago, back in 2000, you know, highlight that for patients who can't make that decision, a, a real conversation should be had, and that it, it may be inappropriate, what you see here, appropriate to withhold or withdraw dialysis for folks with irreversible, profound neurologic impairment, people who lack decision-making capacity, and on this next slide, um, not starting it in patients who have an illness um, from a non-renal cause whose medical condition precludes um, the technical process of it. So folks who are dying of their um, late stage cancers and the complications thereof, um, making a decision not to start hemodialysis is, is somewhat supported in the literature. Now, is dialysis non-beneficial? Um, we'll talk about that. Is it potentially inappropriate? That's again, a judgment call that you have to make, but it's, it's thinking about these terms and thinking about what we should do to help guide you in the conversations that you, you have. And so, the last part of this is something like futility. And this is another gray, ethically fraught area, not a new concept. So some guy called Hippocrates, you know, said thousands of years ago now, 
Physicians should refuse to treat those who are overmastered by their disease, realizing that in such cases, medicine is powerless. And I hate to break it to you, but there's an awful lot of diseases now where we still remain powerless in fixing things, right? We support people and hope that they'll find a way to get through it, but don't necessarily fix what got them there in the first place. Futile treatment is a therapy or intervention that does not have the ability to achieve a physiologic goal. And so there are very cut and dry aspects of this, right? Like demanding that someone get um, a, a breast reconstructive surgery in their last days because um, if only they could have that, it would raise their spirits and they'd be able to beat their septic shock. No, right? Not, not going to work. And that's a ridiculous example. But it's hard to think of things that are truly futile. Um, there are cases, though, where you can make that exact um, description to a family member that we cannot offer this treatment because it truly has no chance of achieving the physiologic goal. For somebody who is um, simultaneously dying of a massive PE and has an already large intracerebral hemorrhage, the uses of thrombolysis therapy is probably futile because while it treats one condition, it will kill them of the other. And so it will not achieve the goal of improving uh, circulatory status. It just rearranges where that um, decomp uh, falling apart is going to happen. Um, now, defining futility is, is not as clear as it was in the last slide. That's what our institution uses to kind of spell it out. But other folks have, have said, you know, there's different components of it that fit better with the American Medical Association, Medical Association and SCCM's definition of utility, that you have a goal to achieve, that there is an action or a thing that you're going to do to somebody to achieve the goal, and that there's virtual certainty that this will fail. Now, this is all gray and fuzzy too, right? Because how often do we have virtual certainty in what's going to happen when we do an intervention? Not all that often, right? And so it's how you kind of manipulate these concepts in your conversation and documentation that help you decide if something is actually futile. Um, physiologic goal is what's the key term here because you could say keeping someone alive is the goal. And then there's a lot of things that are not futile. CPR is not futile if your goal is just moving blood around the body. ECMO is not futile if your goal is just moving blood around the body and maybe augmenting mean arterial pressure. However, if the physiologic goal is recovery, both those things might be futile. If the goal is preventing imminent death of a process that is killing someone that cannot be reversed, cannot be corrected, cannot be fixed, then both those interventions are futile. For someone who has a pan-resistant infection and codes as a consequence of their refractory septic shock, doing CPR could be considered futile because it doesn't prevent the imminent death. It just causes us to move things around while the patient's dying until we decide to stop that code. But how you phrase physiologic goal is what the key thing is here. And having that understanding to help you guide the conversation um, is, is what's going to help you keep patient families and folks understanding what you're doing and hopefully on the same page. 
but that doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes we end up in conflict. And so to help you with that, there is a five society guideline that helps spell out what to do when the conflict comes up. You know, sometimes even your best intentions of getting a patient or a surrogate to understand why you are or are not following a certain treatment plan because of futility, medical inappropriateness, or non-beneficial treatment um, is not met the way you wish it was met. But being familiar with this document can help you at least navigate it from a um, peer-reviewed or standard of care process. And so what they advocate for is that for futile treatment, um, you should provide clear explanation as to why it is actually futile and then don't do the intervention. And if that's the case, the process ends. Even if somebody's saying, do this, if you can say, this is futile, this is why, and really have someone else also document to back you up that you're not alone on an island in this belief, um, then that should be that. And, and you should not be providing futile interventions um, to patients if that's what they are. However, for all the stuff in the gray zone, that's not clearly futile, but maybe just inappropriate or maybe not beneficial from the frame of mind that, that is being discussed, um, there's a strategy to follow. One, yes, keep talking. Don't cut off the decision maker, whether it's the patient or the surrogate, and keep striving for effective communication and involve expert consultation early. And so if there is a consultant you can call in to corroborate your story of why this is not appropriate to do, call them. Even if it's something that you as a person with background education in neurology or internal medicine or surgery or something else feels like I am an expert, um, getting involved, uh, an outside expert consultant to back that up is recommended as step one in this process. Then um, you inform the patient or surrogate um, orally and in something that then couldn't be argued as you never said that, writing, um, that we're going to start this process. Um, at Hospital Center, uh, we've decided that that step will be carried out by someone outside, like in administration or our ethics um, consult service. Um, but this is in that five society guideline and something um, that is worthwhile to at least not spring on the patient's um, decision maker later on. Hey, this whole thing happened. And then to say, what are you talking about? I never knew about it. Um, if you haven't already called an ethics consult, I'd really advise doing it no matter where you work. Um, almost all institutions have some um, ad hoc ability to have an ethics consultant, um, whether if they have actual formal training or not involved in care. Um, the timing of how long it takes to mobilize that, that team, that service is going to depend where you work. Step three, um, even if you've already got that outside consultant um, contributing to the chart, um, get a second opinion from someone with the same expertise you have addressing the patient's prognosis and your judgment um, and their judgment to say if everyone's on the same page. Um, if it's possible, they should be someone who hasn't already taken care of the patient and maybe not from the same group. Um, that's not always possible. Uh, we don't have outside intensivists here at my institution, but plenty of people in the group who haven't seen a particular patient that I can say, we look at this chart and drop a note saying, if you agree that um, this code status or this intervention would be inappropriate, um, and that's not too big of an ask for somebody um, to help you out um, within the people that you work with. Uh, step four, have an interdisciplinary committee get involved. Um, at Hospital Center, this is our ethics consult subcommittee. 
Um, it's made up of people that are clinicians, that are physicians, that are nurses, that are social workers, um, that are just clinical ethicists, that are lawyers, um, and listening to the information um, and making uh, an assessment um, that group does not involve the people directly involved in the care. Um, if it was, for example, me, I would recuse myself from that subcommittee meeting um, and let them all decide as independently as they could. And that group puts something in the patient's chart um, that then, of course, would be accessible if someone ever wanted copies of the chart later on, because it's not a secret process and it's spelled out as to uh, yes or no. We think that based on the information presented that um, this is an appropriate course to withhold, or we think that no, the care should be provided uh, to that patient. Um, and if at any point in one of these stops, the decision is you should provide that care, then that's what happens for that patient. Step five is uh, to let the patient surrogate know, hey, you could look for transfer. And my personal advice you see there, facilitate this. Um, the minimum standard is telling them, hey, if you want to seek a transfer, you can find a find an accepting physician and facility and, and we'll let the patient go. Yes, minimum standard. Um, my advice to you is to maintain some semblance of a relationship with that patient and their family and surrogate. Uh, do this yourself. Uh, you can go on on the Internet and um, do a search for transfer center contact information for places like Maryland, MedStar, Hopkins, Inova. Uh, GW, make a phone call. Every time I've done it, people have been incredibly gracious and helpful. They take some basic information, they run it by their medical director, and they call back. And I'll tell you almost every single time, it's, I'm sorry, we can't accept the transfer. And my answer is, okay, thanks so much for the process. Because I can go back to the family and say, I called three institutions and unfortunately none of them can accept the transfer. And then this step gets done instead of delayed for days and days and days where the family's like, well, I'm trying to find someone at institution XYZ. Well, I've already called them and unfortunately they can't take the patient. Um, you know, it will, it will be helpful, it will be faster, it will stop delays, and it might help build a bridge to show that you're not being obstructionist to it. And it, honest to God, does not take that much time. Um, step six um, is let them know that they, they could seek a court injunction. Um, and on that aspect, you know, that's really all you kind of have to do. Um, but it's recommended to let them know the process. Um, and step seven is do what you thought was right in the first place. Um, how hard is it to get all this done? It's, it's a little bit of work, but it's not insurmountable. And, and like you see there, um, our own institution's policy is if there is a court proceeding pending, um, make sure you talk to the legal and risk department before you decide to go ahead and um, stop whatever you were stopping or not move forward that you're not moving forward with or change the code status. Um, but that's not part of the uh, formal five society guideline. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly extra steps and it certainly is sometimes easier to just be like, you know what, fine, I'll leave them full code. But if, if you feel like it's the wrong thing to do or starting that dialysis or offering this particular intervention that is the wrong thing to do, um, I hope you aren't okay living with that and, and just going with what's easier. Um, like you see here on this slide, we built in, in our policy um, verbiage about time constraints. So this person's crashing and dying right now and the family's saying, do everything. And you know that the care you're going to you know, talk about in doing everything is inappropriate, like cannulating for ECMO or like going to 200 of Levafed or whatever it is, um, do the best that you can. 
and follow as many steps as you can, but clearly you aren't going to get through that entire process in those first couple of hours. And really to provide some perspective, nothing I have talked about today and nothing that has to do with medical ethics is going to prevent 100% of lawsuit opportunities. But if you follow things that are peer reviewed and that are considered standard of care, like good documentation, best efforts for communication, following peer reviewed guidelines like that for that five society guideline, you're at least providing yourself a basis where you're doing the best for the patient that you can. Remember, you don't need permission to provide appropriate care and to hold things that are harmful. We were on a call yesterday as the ethics consult subcommittee where it was, hey, family wants us to keep giving albumin and fluids to someone, and yet every time we do, we worsen their pulmonary edema and their anasarca and they're weeping from their skin and, and they're in a lot of pain from it. Well, if it's more harm than benefit, you don't need permission not to provide harm. Provide good care. Remember, in the ICU, you are intensivists. As intensivists, you are generalists. You are quite possibly the only person on the multi-specialty care team who is looking at that individual from head to toe and weighing the risks and benefits of everything, not just the heart or just the kidney or just the lungs, but thinking about the interactions. You have expertise. And if you just take a step back to think about the biologic things going on, follow good steps to provide autonomous decision-making when appropriate, to help make sure you have good information from surrogates and identify them as appropriate, and that you're addressing conflicts as they come up to not provide non-beneficial, inappropriate, or futile care, you're going to be doing a lot of good in your ICUs. So I know I'm up at 201 and a lot of information. Um, again, I'm Matt Schreiber at Hospital Center. Um, anyone who ever wants to drop an email or a message with um, any kind of help I can provide, I'm happy to give it. And, and I hope this was a little bit helpful.